just being black in America, I think it keeps you pretty humble because I know my roads, you know, I kind of always lean on that with my grandfather and my father would say to me, like, my road's going to be tougher. So just knowing that ahead of time and just kind of digging my heels in consistently and not being afraid to do that. You know, a lot of people are afraid to dig, dig their heels in. A lot of people get their ego to a level and they say, well, I shouldn't have to do this. I'm going to do whatever it takes to be the very best. And I just kind of keep that mindset and I just try to come back to zero. Um, some people call it neutral. Some people call it zero. Um, I just try to come back to that every day and just so I can be at the best place. We talk about being present in the moment. I think that really helps just kind of keep you humbled in the right place because in any particular moment, you've got to be able to handle a situation the right way. And so, and a lot of times there's no forgiveness in what you do in that moment. So you got to get it right. And you can't do that unless you're present in what's most important in that moment. I want to create something that I wish my younger self could have had when I first entered the profession, which is a platform to serve and impact the next generation of coaches. Young coaches, young professionals, young leaders, they need to see black faces and they need to um, know their story. Personal lives are generally publicized within our profession. So our platform will be very unique because our guests will all share their powerful stories to help our listeners unlock their potential greatness. Guys, I know I might say this every time, but this one right here, man, we got a good one coming. Jamie R. Christian, he's a men's basketball coach at George Washington University, and his energy, as soon as you hear the interview, you'll hear his energy from the from the beginning. Um, I love the fact that Jamie R.'s family, he grew up in a family full of educators, and um, based off our interview, they were intentional about letting him know that, you know, as a black person, as a black man navigating through America, that you you have to learn yourself. You have to learn how to navigate through two worlds. It's going to be different when you leave home. Um, so that was one thing about Jamie. I you can tell that he, he was prepared for his life. He was prepared for being a leader and he was prepared for whatever it takes to, to succeed um, as a head coach. Yeah, I agree. I mean, for me, man, I, the thing that jumped off the page during the interview for me was his his humility and his passion. Um, you know, he was somebody, man, that that loves people and it showed, you know what I mean? Obviously, you're going to be able to hear a lot of those things throughout the conversation that we had. Um, but he was somebody, man, that you could tell, like, oh, it, it probably is fun to play for him. You know what I mean? He seems like somebody that's that's all about just just giving you confidence and and, and, and loving life, you know. And um, I enjoyed it, man. I mean, I took a lot from him. Uh, you know, one thing that I like, you know, that he said was uh, he talked about abusive love versus appreciative love, mm-hmm. right? And he said that you know there's a difference, you know, complete mm-hmm. difference. Like some people look at it as though you know, when they say abusive love, it's when you take advantage of a person that loves you. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But when it's appreciative love, you you show that by the things you do for them and show them how much you appreciate them um, by basically just being a servant, man. And, uh, you know, the, I, I loved it, man. I really do. I can't wait for you guys to hear it for real. Yeah, definitely. Um, you mentioned talking about fun. Uh, it was funny. I mentioned this in an interview, but like when I first saw him like on a, a Zoom call, I thought he was like 
like a paid moderator, like a paid <laughs> like analyst, because he was so energetic, he was well spoken. I was like, oh shoot, let's get paid to speak. You know what I'm saying? Like he be bringing the heat. Um, but then uh, about fun with playing with him is like you can have fun when you know what you're doing. You can have fun when you're not um, forcing things on the people that you that work for you or your players. And another thing that he mentioned, last thing I'm say before we get into it was about. He he's a master at learning how his players operate. He talked about the mental part of the brain and the emotional yeah. part of the brain, and you know that's a big that's a big thing to really conceptualize as a head coach, knowing that it's not just about basketball. You have to learn how people operate. Yeah, that's his daily that's his daily challenge. Like that's that's where he's trying to create wins. That's where he's trying to create value. You know what I mean? And it's and it's interesting when you get people like that because to me that's different. You know what I mean? That that's what separates you, and you're trying to to really develop the whole person. Um, mm-hmm. Because like we always said, you know, obviously as coaches, man, the basketball part comes easy. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It, it's the it's the it's the whole body, the whole person that we're trying to create from the mind, the body, and the spirit. Um, and he's very intentional about trying to develop that in his guys as well as his staff too, because he obviously talked about the things that he do with him, you know with his staff. Mm-hmm. So. All around, all around. Well, guys, like I always say, get your pen, get your notebook. We got a good one coming to you. Um, We hope you appreciate um, this episode. Welcome to the show, Coach. It's great to have me on. Thanks for uh, taking the time. We really appreciate it. Um, This is the Black Excellence in Sports podcast where we highlight those who we believe demonstrate black excellence we want to highlight their story their voice and use their testimony to inspire others to unlock their greatness coach when you think about black excellence what comes to mind how would you define black excellence you know when i think of black excellence i think of the the hands that built this country um you know we live in a great country it's a complicated uh, complex country obviously but you know the hands that have built it and allowed our country to become as great as it, as it has become. I'm excited for the last few months because I feel like we've actually been able to have a platform and we've been able to share some details that I think our, our great-grandfathers would tell us and, and our grandmothers, we've been able to really share that. And I think that's been really important. You know, the, the nature of American history is as much about the Civil War as it is about Black excellence and, and, and Black people really creating a world that's, that we live in today. And so I'm, I'm excited to be here with you to kind of talk a little bit about that and, uh, and try to continue to contribute to that. Coach, are there anyone in your life that you can highlight um, that have demonstrated black excellence to you? Well, it starts with my father. Um, you know, my father was a track and field guy. He ran at Virginia State. My mother um, went to school at Norfolk State. And so both of them going to HBCUs and understanding the importance of HBCUs in our, in our world right now. And I think, you know, they would always really talk to us about going to college. And I think for HBCUs, they were, they were the first schools that were really designed for, for black people to be excellent and to achieve excellence and to be elite. And, you know, they took that as such a, such a badge, a badge of honor when they attended those. And so they would always talk to us about Norfolk state and Virginia state and, and what it did for them and how it changed their lives. But then most importantly, how it changed our lives and how that was a generational decision that they were making um, to allow us to be where we stand today. You know, my brother is assistant coach for the wizards. I'm the head coach of George Washington. So just understanding what, how important it is for each generation to take another step. And they would really communicate that a ton. And, and from my understanding, that was really communicated to them when they were in school HBCUs uh, of how important that was and to give back. So it's, 
you know, I, I start everything with my family, really. I mean, my mom taught special education in, in the middle school for 30, 30 plus years. My dad is still coaching and teaching in high school. And so they've basically had a life of, of giving to others. Um, and we would discuss that routinely at the, at the dinner table. That's awesome, Coach. Um, I'm from Virginia, 757 area. So a lot of my family would in Norfolk State. We go to homecoming every year when I was in high school. So that was pretty cool, um, you know, hearing you say that. Yeah, it's nothing better, um, you know, like when you really get a chance to go in there and experience that, I mean, it, there's really nothing better. And just yeah. the, you have the culture of it. You know, what's, what's great is that everyone there at the homecoming understands how important it is and they understand the history of it. And you can feel that when you walk into that environment, you know, by now, you know, we've been in so many different environments, big games and, and all that kind of stuff. But when you walk into those homecomings or, or you walk into a campus, it just feels different. And um, you know, I, I'll never forget those feelings when I walked on the Hamptons campus for the first time and I was kind of looking to go to school there or walked on to Virginia State homecoming in Norfolk State. And, um, you know, it's amazing. And I, I hope more people get a chance to go and experience it because it's, you know, it's very few places as a, as a black male where you can walk somewhere and walk on campus and you feel completely accepted for who you are. And you feel that when you walk on campus and you feel the connectivity of the people there striving to be elite and wanting you to be elite as they're trying to be elite. It's a, uh, it's as magical a feeling as I've, I've ever felt, and I'll never forget it. What have you learned um, about yourself um, navigating, you know, your career as a Black man? What separates you, and what have you learned about yourself? Man, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think in, in a large regard, you know, we've all kind of gotten to the place where we are because we've learned how to navigate the world that we've been in. Um, and so, you know, what I've learned is that I've had to have great flexibility and great patience. Um, you know, I, I was telling my family the other day, it's like, you know, for my son, it's like, you know, he, he, he's grown up in two worlds, as every black person has. You're growing up in your world where everyone else is, where you've got to be a certain way to be able to strive. And you're growing up in, a, in, a, in, a, in your secondary education, where you're learning about yourself through your family and, and through your church and things of that nature. Um, you know, so through that time, I've learned I've had to be really flexible. Um, I've watched guys get opportunities that I didn't deem were, were, were fair. But I think what you learn as a black male is life isn't fair that you do have to work up harder to get the same, to get to the same level. Um, and you know, my family just instilled that in me so deeply that I don't even notice the opportunities that others are getting. I just notice the blessings that I'm getting that are surrounded by me, by, by the people around me, by the people that care, by the hard work that we put in every day. You know, I, again, I've been so lucky that, you know, growing up and, and just having these people around me that were excellent. You know, my dad traveled with the Olympic traveling team for several years in the late 70s, early 80s, my mom just being a fixture in our community, my grandfather, you know, all these people in my life have been excellent. And so, you know, I just learned from watching them, you know, how to have a smile on your face, but still have a killer instinct, you know, like, I think most of the time you see guys with a killer instinct. And most of the time, you know, you'll see people with a killer instinct, and they, you don't want to be around them. But as a black male, you can't be that way. You got to be both. You got to be the person that walks in the room and engages everybody that people want to be around. And then you've got to step on the court or, or wherever you're going to be, and you got to compete uh, ferociously. Um, and I think I learned that from watching my family. And I've learned that, you know, just in my own experience here is that, you know, we have to be two ways because I've got to walk in and I've got to, I've got to entertain people. I've got to, got to captivate people. And I got to be able to do that. But in the same respect, I got to be, I got to be great at my job and I got to be a great competitor and I got to be fearless as a competitor. Um, I think you learned that growing up and, you know, that's, that's, that's allowed me to be where I stand here today. I like the way you talk about two worlds, handling two worlds. How do you demonstrate that as well to your players, but most importantly to your son today? Yeah, you know, it's, that's, a, that's a great question. You know, 
with our players, what I always constantly do with our, with all our players is we try to create an environment where every one of them can, can understand what's really going on. So there's a lot more dialogue in our program, like it would be for, I'm sure many of us, when we went home, the, the dialogue is different. You know, I remember watching Rodney King and I remember watching incidents like that. And, you know, you hear the news and then you have the conversation with your family. And so what I've always tried to do with our environment is create a family environment where we're having those kind of difficult conversations. Um, you know, like you think about it, like my fam, my dad's relationship with me isn't about just being a provider. Right. And I feel like in some families, your father is just a provider. You know, he's a mentor. He's a person you can trust. He's a person you got to be able to lean on. You know, your, your father wears a lot of different hats in black communities. So I've always kind of led our teams that way. Um, I never wanted my existence for our players to be just about basketball. Um, like literally we, we rarely talk about basketball off the floor, uh, right? Like, so I want to talk about what's going on in the news and we talk about this. I share articles with them and they summarize it and we send it back, but it's all about creating this environment where we can really talk and communicate with one another, um, which is not about basketball because they're going to be in two worlds. And it's important for, for the, the white guys on my team to understand that there are two worlds. And what's the best thing about the last few months is that you're really seeing a, a you're really seeing them converge together for the first time. I think we're, you know, we really have the freedom to speak up and to say what's fair and what's unfair. And that's really exciting. And so when we, when we kind of, when this happened a few months ago, it was great because I didn't feel like our team was uncomfortable talking. Um, they all opened up really quickly and really easily because we just do it so much of it. And we take pride in it. Um, you know, we say connections are a gift and you can't be connected unless you're telling the real truth. And, you know, we're trying to allow our team and the environment to be able to do that. So that's really important for us. And that's always been important. And then with my son, Man, I mean, it's just such an ever-changing world, you know, like, you know, trying to, you know, my son's only eight, so he's, a, he's not quite there yet, but you're trying to instill things in him, like being on, you know, obviously being on time, where you sit at in class, how you, how you dress, how you wear, you know, all those things that we learned, you know, you think about how important Sunday church was to show off your Sunday best, right? And that's important in Black communities, but it's important for a lot of different way, reasons, right? It's a place where we could all come together and communicate and, and bond and gain enough energy to go out and tackle the world ahead of us, a place where our spirit was, was enhanced as well. It was also a place where you showed off how well you could dress and how important that was. And you felt that every morning when you got up for Sunday, you know, you put on your best tie, you put on your best outfit. So those are really important in, in black communities and they're, really, and they're really important for children to learn. So just trying to make sure we're creating that kind of environment for my son where he can understand both sides of it. And hopefully as this world grows closer together, uh, maybe his understanding won't be, be as, as in depth as mine had to be. But, you know, he's a little bit young to teach him, you know, the police and all that. But he's coming to that age. You know, as you get to about 10 or 11, that's the time that you start having those conversations about if you get pulled over by a police officer, what, what are you supposed to do if you're here? You know, so this is, a, you know, he's getting close to that age. But right now, he's just kind of seeing some of this for the first time. And that's why we, when people talk about racism being taught, I see it with my child. Because children have no understanding of this. They, they don't know any of it. Um, and it's always taught as they get older. And so I'm excited trying to help create a world for him that that's going to be a little bit different than the world that we grew up in. Coach, where do you learn the skill to cultivate those environments and facilitate those conversations? And, um, you know, what, what also gives you the, conf the confidence to spend so much time on that, you know, knowing that your job is about winning games and things like that and knowing that that's how you'll be judged? Uh, you know, I love basketball and our players love basketball and we try to find guys that love hoop and I can coach basketball. So I'm never worried about coaching basketball. Like I can study that for hours and I've played it forever, and, you know, coaching a bunch of games and stuff. So I'm never worried about that aspect of it. And it's for me, it's always been about just, just our players enhancing their lives. 
um, you know, in 20 years from now, one of the guys in our locker room, they're going to they're gonna have a tough day. They may get laid off from their job. Their wife may leave them. Something tragic may happen in their lifetime. And we're doing our job. If they pick up the phone and call somebody inside that locker room, you know, if they call someone in their toughest moments that they know is going to answer the phone and have their back in their toughest moments, that's what it's about. And so we're really creating this environment so that when, when guys have a tough moment, they have someone to lean on. You know, when guys have a great moment, when they're getting married, when they're having a child, the first person they call uh, beside their parents are, are their teammates, and they want them to be a part of that. Um, you know, I, I kind of learned that just by just being around my, my family. You know, I really don't know any other way to do it. Uh, my dad was a, my dad's won state track and field two times. Um, the first time they won, won the state track and field in Virginia, they didn't even have a track, right? And so just watching him and his uh, determination to be able to do that, watching my mom with her students, you know, I have a great benefit. My parents are both teachers. I mean, that's, that's an amazing benefit for me as an educator myself. I pride myself as an educator, you know, watching her work with a student all year for a test at the end of the year and then watching her excitement when they get that, when they get the score they need to get, you know, that's like so challenging because she, she only can control the energy she puts out and the knowledge that she's sharing. She can't control what happens on that test, but watching her excitement for that and watching her fight for her students when they needed more help or, you know, just watching these things. You think about a high school or a middle school setting, these kids are going through so much and they're all trying to figure it out. So having a family that battled for students um, from, you know, and just watching them do this, um, I just think it was the best education I was able to get. And um, in a lot of ways, I'm just taking what they taught me and just trying to continue to do that on a different, on a different scale. Would you demonstrate love at your core um, in life? But, but really in your program, um, I hear you talk about love a lot um, when someone has you on their podcast or their shows. Can you talk to us about how you get the, you show your players how much you love them and how much you care for them and, and then also get the same in return in such a, a male dominant sport where guys aren't trying to be vulnerable and they take pride in showing their love and their affection. Can you, because I think you're really good at that. Well, I love them and everything we're doing as an organization is to just demonstrate how much we love them. And, you know, the thing about love, it's crazy is like, you know, love should be given, trust should be earned. Right. And so we're constantly building our trust while we're trying to continue to show them that we love them and, and they're going to show their love in a different way. Right. Like I'm a 38 year old male. I'm going to show my love in one way. They're 17, 18 years old. They're going to show their love in a different way. So it's not about putting our love on a, on a balance beam, you know, and saying, oh, well, this has got to balance out. It doesn't really work that way. Um, but it is about trying to show them the examples that they need to be the people that they need to be when it's really tough. Um, and so we talk a lot about it. You know, one of the things we say is love is accountability and accountability is love. And I think one of the best things that my family was able to give to me that I've tried to give to our players, they just held me accountable. You know, there's nothing worse than when you do something poor when you're a teenager and someone you love says, I just think you're better than that. You know, like when you get past the part of whippings and, and punishments and it just comes, I'm just so disappointed in you. I just want, I just thought you were better than that, you know, or that's not what my son would do. Or, you know, that man, like that was sting because you want that love and approval. And so I just always wanted to be able to build that kind of love up for our guys. And I feel like, you know, I always say this a lot of times in recruiting, like, you know, they're, they're, what would you do for the person that you love? And everyone always says anything, everything. So if we can build the amount of love up in our organization, man, what are we going to have? You know, like every, all these other teams are trying to win with talent or trying to win with fear. And man, wars have been started and wars have been ended with love. 
And so if we can love each other and just understand how important that is, man, we got something really special. And the thing about love is it just keeps growing on itself. There's no end to love. There's an end to fear, but there is no end to love. So when you're constantly loving and building on your love, that love cultivates and then it multiplies. And so as it multiplies, I mean, like how good can you be? Like you should be able to watch our teams play and go, man, these guys really love each other. And then that reverberates to another kid who's watching it and reverberates to someone else. And it just kind of keeps going. And yeah, I think that's like a big part of it for me is like really just helping these guys understand how powerful love is. You know, we also talk a lot about, uh, I'll talk about this, like abuse of love, right? And so we talk about being on this balance beam. You know, there's nothing worse in life than a man that abuses love, right? And so an abuser of love is a person who, um, you know, they know someone loves them and they just take advantage of them. I mean, I'm sure we see that. I remember seeing this in high school so many times, like this guy would have this girl he was dating and she loved him and she'd be buying him all kinds of shoes all the time. We all know this one, right? So she's buying him shoes every other week and he's just abusing her love, right? But he doesn't love her, right? And so I talk a lot about abuse of love because I feel like we can get the males in our, in our, in our world not to abuse love, to appreciate love, right? And so if I appreciate love, if, if my love differs or changes, I just let you know. I just tell you. Um, and that allows you to be able to move on. And so I just think abuse of love is, is one of the biggest things no one talks about. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's one of my own things, but I think that's huge. Um, and you see that a ton. And I just don't want our guys to ever be a part of that. And so we talk a lot about abuse of love, um, you know, because what is like truly loving someone. And so, you know, we just spend a lot of time talking about it. You know, you asked about how we get the guys more vulnerable. You know, these guys are dying to open up to somebody about stuff. They're dying to. I think we all are. And, you know, our, our biggest job and our biggest uh, opportunity is to help these guys find their identity. And you can't find your identity if you're trying to be somebody else. And so trying to help them work through, and we do have, we have like a leadership enhancement plan that I'm a big believer in that really, as you filter through, it helps guys find their identity, helps them found their values and what's most important to them. And, um, you know, as you find your identity, you just stand for so much more. You know, you start to understand your why, like, why am I doing this? Why wouldn't I do this? Those things become really important. And I just feel like, I'll be honest, I just feel like a lot of programs are only focusing on wins and losses. And maybe they might win more games than me one year or two years. But I think when we get this organization going all in the right direction with how much love we have for one another, you know, we don't abuse our love, but we appreciate it. We hold each other accountable because we love them, respect their dreams and the things they're going through. Man, I just don't know. I don't think there's any end to how good we can be. And I don't think, it's, I don't think there's any end to how good these men can be for people in society. So I just want to be a part of that. And, uh, you know, that's one of the biggest things that I'm driven to do. Um, it's been a lot of fun trying to establish it. Um, again, I mean, love is defined a lot of different ways, but, you know, just trying to really help these guys be able to identify it, see their environment, see the people in front of them, um, and to be able to open up when they need help and know that we're always here for them. Wow, Coach, that's powerful. Um, I told another guest we had that my son was going to play for them, but if I have another one, they're coming to play for you. Um, <laughs> I want to transition here. I heard you speak before about humility and um, learning from mistakes. Um, can you talk about a time where you had to use humility and kind of learn from a mistake and, you know, you got knocked down, you had to get back up. Can you talk about that experience for a little Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's an everyday thing. I think if you're really trying to be better than you were the day before, um, humility is huge and the guys we look for, um, they're huge in the guys that we hire. Cause I just feel like when you have humility, you can laugh at yourself and move on and learn from it. And, I think one of the biggest experiences we had, you know, Mount St. Mary's 2017, it was year number five for me going into year number five. We, we recruited these guys and had these guys. We had an unbelievable roster of guys. I mean, 
on this roster, we had we just had guys that played it, end up transferring from the mountain, played at Texas and Miami, and um, one played at St. Bonaventure, one played at uh, UNLV, just transferred away fours. Another one played at Kansas State. Um, another, another was one of the best scores in, in the MEAC the last two years. I mean, we just had so much talent, you know, and then on that team that stayed was a defensive player of the year as a senior and an All-American. So we had all these guys together, and it was so much work, you know. I mean, we got to year five, and we finally kind of got the roster in the way we wanted it, and, and you know, we started 1-11, and and then we turn around and we win the rest of the year. We end up going to the NCAA tournament, winning a game. My humility isn't about the 1-11. The humility happens at the end of the year when we want all these guys to come back and four of them left. And, you know, when that happens, you're, you're really hitting the, in, in the stomach, you know, and I think, and whether or not you feel like guys should leave and not be able to sit and all that stuff, that's a, that's a discussion for another day. But for a person like myself who really values my relationship with our players and these relationships started when they were 15, 16 years old. And, you know, you're just diving into these guys every day and you're trying to give everything you got for the guys. And I think sometimes in the media, they don't understand how much coaches are putting into these kids, you know, and I try to live that way. I try to put it on the, for, on the line from every single day. And so we have this great year, best year in school history, win the most, you know, regular season title, hosted the championship game, won that, won a game in the postseason. I mean, just an amazing year. And then each, the next, next uh, four weeks, a guy comes in and says he's leaving. You know, that's like hard to stomach because you've literally laid all, the, all this foundation. You laid all this and you know, if everybody comes back, we're going to be top 25. Like, we, we've got an amazing team coming back here. And every one of those guys, we didn't graduate any seniors that were playing a ton. And so the humility comes in when, you know, when the fourth guy comes in, he's going to leave. I mean, it literally brought me to tears. Um, the first three, I was, I was fine for some reason. The fourth one was the one that broke the back, you know, and it just really brought me to, brought me to tears. And, and it brought me to tears because I was like, man, like, you know, I had to evaluate what did I do to these guys? You know, I had to try to evaluate all the things that were going on. And, you know, the humility part comes in, like, when you realize, like, I couldn't have done anything different. You know, we could have loved these guys as much as we loved them. And, and so I, at that time, I was running every day. And it was like an epiphany. I was running on one of my runs. And I was like, am I going to be the guy that, um, am I going to be the guy that holds these guys back from their dream? Or am I going to be the guy that tries to help them fulfill their dreams? And it was just kind of like, you know, and I just said, like, at the end of the day, I want to help these guys fulfill their dreams. And I'm living my dream. And that's what I said to myself. I'm living my dream. So it's not about me. Um, you know, so that was that situation. We went through that. And it just, like, punched me right, right in the stomach. And for a second, I was, I, for a second, just a small second, I felt bad for myself. But after that, I was like, it's not about me. It's about these guys. Um, so that's one. I want to give a second one because I think humility is so important. Um, I, was player, I was playing at Mount St. Mary's. And I was a pretty good player the first couple of years. You know, played a ton. We weren't very good because I wasn't very good, um, but I played a ton and I was a, I was a key contributor to the team. And then we had a game. I, my head coach comes to me and he says, hey, where do you want to play at? Your senior year, where do you want to play? And I said, I want to play at Richmond. You know, I'm from outside of Richmond. Um, I love Richmond. I wanted to play there. So we go play at Richmond and I don't play a second, right? I don't play a second. Yeah, it was really heartbreaking. Um, and so we, I don't play a second and I'm in my locker and I'm thinking I have all, I have 50 of my family and friends there that have never seen me play. So they're all there and, you know, like half my school's there and, you know, I'm a small town boy, so that's a big deal. And, you know, and I was just in my locker just feeling so bad about myself. And then, you know, so I started crying and I was crying like the most, I mean, just, you know, gut wrenching thing, because it's like, if I didn't play today, I'm never going to play this year. You know, if I didn't get a chance and I have to go out here and see all these people. And, um, and I just remember crying these, the heaviest of tears 
and just feeling so selfish, like, man. And as soon as I started feeling selfish, I just said, I'm not going to do this. And I said, I'm going to be the best teammate all year long. And I almost like just snapped out of it within a moment's notice. And I just had to be humble to myself. Like, maybe I'm not better than these guys. Maybe there's another way for me to help this team. And in that moment, I mean, I just felt like I, you know, when I got off, off of being selfish, um, I felt like my humility allowed me to really grow. And so that's why I always try to remind players, like your humility comes in the, in the, in the most different of moments. And so being prepared for that, listening for that humility for you, because that's going to give you a big, big, big thing of growth. And uh, it's been huge for me within my life. Oh, something I've heard you say before, um, and I think it, it sits well with uh, the story that you just said. Um, you say, let's be humble, and I need to be humbled. Yeah. Oh, man. You listen to Man, that's me, man. I'm like, you got a great team. And, you know, like, I'm big on confidence now. So I'm like a cultivator of confidence. So if someone comes to me and they're, you know, a coach will say, man, coach, you didn't have a lot of confidence. I ain't worried about that because I'm building this confidence up. I'm believing him. I'm loving him up every day. I'm going to get his confidence right. Um, but because, because I'm such a big believer of confidence and trying to create that, I, I call like confidence the best steroid that you can have, you know, because like, when a guy's confident, I mean, he can do such special things. And so, um, you know, we're, we're looking at that. And so what happens is guys get so like caught on themselves because of the level of, of confidence I'm giving them. I'm like, man, let's be humble. Let's not need to be humbled by someone else, right? And so it's just like, be humble with what you're doing. Understand the process that got you here. If you allow, if you allow yourself to get outside of your, if you allow your, your, your inner to get outside and you start listening to this outside noise, well, you're going to get humbled. You know, and I think about being humbled. I think about Mike Tyson um, in the ring in, in Tokyo. <laughs> you know, I think about, that's when I think about being humbled. You know, when you think about our greatest celebrities and superstars, when they meet that moment of being humbled, man, it's a life-changing moment. Sometimes they respond, but a lot of times they don't. And so I'm always telling our teams, let's be humble, great respect for our opponent, great respect for what we're trying to do, great respect for our journey. Our journey is far more important than anything else that's going on right now. But don't allow someone else to have to come here and, be, and humble you. Because if you allow that, it's going to happen. Like if you wait long enough, you're going to get a rainy day. And you just got to keep living and staying with it. So it's just this constant mindset of trying to remind the guys of just be humble, be inside yourself, stick what's been going on. Don't allow someone else to have to come in and humble you because God has an amazing way of being able to do that if you get outside of yourself. Coach, we all know that the goal in this profession is to win ball games. And we try to do our best to develop young men from a physical performance standpoint. But you are very intentional about challenging their mental and emotional makeup. Yeah. Why is that so important to you? And how has that not only helped you as a coach, but helped you as a person? Yeah. So we talk about, we call it MEP, mental, emotional, physical brains. So, you know, some psychologists have said this, I caught on to it. It's not my thing. I've, I've barred it. Um, but you know, your mental brain, and that's kind of how you process stuff. That's how you work through things. Your emotional brain, like emotion can be a weapon, but it can also be a deterrent, right? How you feel. A lot of times how we feel, it leaks in. And then your physical brain is like your muscle memory, right? So coaches are great at teaching the physical brain. I mean, that's like kind of what we do. Hey, you shoot your free throws this way, defensive slide this way. You know, honestly, no one's teaching the physical brain any differently. We're all doing about the same thing. Our talent level, even if someone's at Kentucky versus GW, the talent level isn't that great. Um, but the mental emotional brain are important because they leak into the physical brain. And so when I'm really locked in mentally and emotionally to what is happening in the moment, we talk about being present in the moment, PIM, 
when I'm really locked into what's important in that moment, then my physical has a chance to go and fly around and be what it needs to be. Because we have all the training. You know, you've made enough free throws, you've made enough threes. What always constantly happens is though, you catch and you go, oh, am I open? That's your mental or emotional brain leading into your physical. And so we're constantly trying to find this area. Some people call it like the zone where guys can play freely without thinking about those things. So I spend a lot of time on that because I think that's the part where we can have the biggest gains. If I can take an immature kid coming in at 17 and he be, the sooner he becomes mature and what matters most, he's going to be a great player because he probably has the talent level, but there's probably several moments in there where he's just not locked into the level he needs to be, or there's something happening emotionally that he can't dive into. Right. And so when you talk about emotion, I mean, emotion is this bucket that's filled with so many different things. Right. So, and let's say you have a kid, let's say you have a kid who plays basketball. His parents got divorced in high school. They sit on opposite ends of the gym, right? His emotional brain, every time he goes to play basketball, drifts to that point, no matter what happens. So until, you, until you're able to dive into that and allow him to feel comfortable in that moment, it's going to drift in every single time he goes and plays a game. So when we talk about like, eating, you know, so that, that's my whole thing is like really trying to get to know the guys and to listen to them. And, you know, like you think about that, man, like if that happens to you in high school, you've probably, the guy would have played a hundred games, 75 games in high school, right? If that happens to you as a freshman, he goes on to college, he's going to play 35 a year. If you never address that with him and every time he walks into the basketball and he thinks about his parents being two different parts of there, that's a, that's an issue that takes him to an emotional place that he now has to drill back out of to go and perform. Right. So I want to try to just dig into those things and, talk to them and help them work through it or connect them to the people that need to, because I feel like we're wasting all this time on the physical brain and the mentally and emotional brain are the ones where the biggest gains are. You know, if a guy's operating on a 20% emotional brain, but a hundred percent physical brain, well, you're going to have a guy who's a, who's, who's an inconsistent player. But if I can get him emotionally and mentally up as high as possible, he's going to be really consistent because when something bad happens, he resets himself back into the moment. He's able to go on, you know, his physical brain to go and play. And so we just spent a ton of time, talking about that, spending time on that, diving deep in with our guys, getting to know them. And, and don't think, you know, talking about trust and love, you know, you can't dive into mental, emotional brain unless the guys trust and love you. Um, and so we just try to spend a lot of time diving into those areas. Um, some years it's easier than others, but the one thing it's undefeated, uh, the, the love part and the trust part is undefeated when you have enough time to be able to do it. Did you have the same approach as an assistant coach? You know, a lot of this kind of, you know, a lot of this kind of started when I was an assistant. Um, so typically when you're an assistant, you're spending time with a certain number of guys. Like every coach breaks it up. You have four or five guys and these are your guys, whatever. And I just remember, you know, spending a ton of time with some guys. Like I was at William & Mary. We had a guy named Danny Sumner and Brandon, Brandon Britt. These guys are really talented players. And just spending, and coaches say, hey, these are your guys. So spend time with them, make sure they're in the right place, do whatever. And I just thought, man, like, and those guys played well. And the assistants would do that with their one or two guys or whatever. And I just thought, what if the whole staff did this to the whole team? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like, it's like we're picking and choosing, hey, we're going to spend more time with these six guys than we are everybody else. It's like, well, why don't we just create an environment and create a program? We're spending all the time with the guys. And we make it all about the guys. Um, you know, when a guy joins my staff, it's always interesting because we've recruited really well in the last nine years, eight years or whatever. Um, we've had a bunch of rookies of the year. We've had, you know, we've had a bunch of guys go play overseas. We've recruited really well, but we spend less time in recruiting because I tell our staff, like we're, we're staying home base. Like you're staying with our guys and we're going to go out when it's, when it fits around our guys' schedule. Everyone else sets their practice schedules and their players' lives around their recruiting schedule. 
You, you, you think about that. Like, so they're just sitting there all around these things that they can't control on the outside instead of what they can control on the inside. I'm like, I'm like we're going to control the inside. So we might have less guys go out on the road recruit than everybody else. And everyone looks at us probably like we're crazy. But I think because we spend so much time with our guys and our unit, we become so connected and there's so much love. When guys visit, they feel that. So they choose to come play for us over someone else who might have recruited them longer or harder or whatever because they want to be a part of something that's bigger than themselves. They want to be a part of doing something that's never been done. And they can see that vision and it feels differently. Um, so that's one of the biggest things that we're, we're really trying to do with that. And it's, um, it, it's been fun trying to establish it. It's different. Um, but again, it's been, a, it's been a ton of fun just trying to build, build that into our staff and to our players. For our audience, um, this is the Black Excellence in Sports podcast. And Coach Christian just explained something that was very complex and just explained it like, you know, very easily. Um, and that's what we think about when we think about Black excellence. We think about the intelligence that it takes to to lead a team and to lead a program. Um, you know, I just want to highlight, like, it takes a high level of intelligence to be able to understand that and to be able to, you know, silence the noise of wins and losses and really focus on making sure that his players are the best they could possibly be, you know, on or on or off the court. So, um, you know, thank you for that. Um, and one thing I want to get into is I, I know that um, you worked with Shaka Smart for one year and you mentioned that he spent a lot of time with you. Um, what did you learn from that time that you spent with him? And did you kind of take that approach with spend a lot of time with your assistants um, when you became a head coach? Yeah, you know, I love coach. I mean, coach Smart's been an amazing person in my life. Um, you know, from bringing me from William and Mary to VCU, and I didn't know him. Everyone thinks the coach Smart and I had this like tough, close relationship before I got there. I didn't know him at all. You know, we had just competed against one another, and I got lucky to get a call for an interview and, and interviewed, and, and, and he, he hired me, you know. Um, but I could tell right away that he was so different. You know, I remember as an assistant on the opposing bench watching him grow as a coach and as a leader, and watching as VCU started kind of turning into his program. You know, he replaced Anthony Grant. And you could just tell the vibe and the feel was different. And, you know, and you could tell he had the type of personality I was going to be able to grow on that. And so as a black head, as a black coach, getting a chance to work for someone like that, like, you know, there's, I feel like I'm so privileged in the regard that I had a chance to work for someone like me in terms of my skin color and how he could connect with the guys and the players. And he never tried to like delegate his relationship with the players, um, which most of the time when I watch coaching, um, that's ends up happening. Guys are delegating relationships. And that was my history as an assistant. People were delegating relationships to certain assistant coaches instead of the head coach having some level of involvement. It's like coaches are trying to build a barrier between them and the team. And watching Coach Smart not do that. Watching him bring the team in closer. You know, after a tough practice, sitting on the floor talking to a guy for an hour, not coaching him, not yelling at him, not telling what he needs to do better, listening to him and talking with him. I remember, remember I would, you would go Coach Smart recruiting, and he would, you know, all these head coaches make the assistants drive, but he would always drive you, right? So you say, hey, we're going to go recruiting. All right, great, I'm ready to drop. Nope, he's just going to drive the car every time. But he gives you his cell phone. And I remember he gives you his cell phone, and you got to answer his texts and stuff. And I remember looking at his texts, and he had every one of our players. And he had been texting every one of those guys through the day, you know, over and over again. And you could tell there's just a real dialogue and a real synergy between them. And that was when I first got to VCU and I recognized, man, that's different. You know, most guys aren't doing that. Most guys aren't putting that much time into their team. And 
and he's doing that every day. And he doesn't just say it, he does that. And he lives that way with them. And, you know, so to watch a black head coach and to be a, you know, and to be a guy working for him, man, it was amazing for me to watch. And it, and it made me feel confident that I could go and be me. I know that sounds crazy. You would think like, man, like you're a head coach at 29. You should be confident to go and be you. But you don't know if you works. You know, college basketball, 80% of the coaches are white head coaches. So everyone's watching this guy coach. We're watching Coach K coach. We're watching Coach Calipari coach. We're watching these other guys coach, Tony Bennett. But I don't know if that works for me. You know, the guys are looking at me differently. The fan base is looking at me different. My administration is looking at me differently. So to work for someone that I could see it, I could see through his eyes a bit and to be able to have conversation with him about the things that he's seeing and why he's seen it that way, man, really, really changed my life. And, you know, it's great to have a mentor like that. And I wish more people had mentors like that. Again, I, you know, I'm privileged that I got, I got hired by a guy who wanted to pour energy into me. I was a nobody, still am a nobody, right? He poured energy into me and gave me some opportunities in life that I would never have had without him. And so I'm always eternally grateful to him. And I appreciate his friendship every day. Coach, talking about how Coach Smart empowered you, okay, as your mentor, how do you do the same for your staff now as a head coach? Um, well, you know, we try to create this program and our organization is based around us just mentoring one another and teaching one another. So we do, you know, like usually the month of May, it wasn't this year because of COVID, we call it a study month. And in a study month, we're, I'm giving these guys five different people to call, five different things to study. And then we come back as a group and we kind of discuss it as a unit. Um, I, give the, I give our staff books and stuff to read because I feel like they have to constantly be growing their knowledge. I'm constantly trying to grow mine. You know, I wake up in the morning, I'm listening to this, I'm reading this book, I'm doing this. All throughout the day, I'm trying to put myself in a learning environment. I feel like I got to do that for our staff. Um, and, I, and I have an obligation to do that, you know, in one regard with that, with the learning and educating themselves, not just on basketball, but how to mentor their, their families, mentor their, their, our, our players better. Then there's another social aspect. You know, I've been divorced. I was married young. I have a child. You know, I've been remarried, you know, so I have a lot of social obligations as well to help share with them. Like, man, listen, if you do this, this is going to happen. And to really try to have those kind of conversations. I feel like a lot of coaches are afraid to dive into that stuff with their staff. But I told our staff last week, I said, who'd you marry to? And they said, oh, I'm married to, to this person. Said, no, we're all married. We're all married. If anyone in this circle makes a mistake or does something wrong, everyone here is affected. So let's stop acting like, oh, we're just, you know, we're this, we're the, this business where, you know, if the, if the plumbing's out over here, we can go to this side of the building. It doesn't work that way, okay? We're all married together. And so I think that the constant kind of tutelage and, and just have constant conversation with these guys about that stuff, I think it's really important. And I think most people are kind of afraid to do that, but I'm not afraid to do that because I think it's important. And I want everybody feeling really strong together. I mean, you look at the, you look, learn about the SEALs, Navy SEALs and stuff. Like these guys make sure their families are always locked in and everybody's family knows what's going on. So why wouldn't we do that in basketball where we're so closely connected? Um, so we just spend a lot of time trying to do that and bringing the family. If you, have, if you have children on our staff, you can bring them to practice anytime you want. If your family wants to come on a game, they can come anytime they want. Like, I think our players need to see fatherhood. So why not bring your kids to, to practice? Why not have them over for a cookout, for a barbecue? Why not do something fun with them and actually participate, not just set it up for them? Um, so I just think those things are really important to be able to do. Um, you know, you're going to obviously mentor by what you see in front of you, but I think also mentoring is trying to show them, you know, mistakes that I've made, things that will happen if we don't, and just trying to cons consistently educate them um, as, they're as they're on their journey too, to try to be at their best. Coach, were you this passionate and intentional 
at the age of 29 when you became a head coach the way you are now, or did it grow with time? Um, I think I've always been passionate. I've always been kind of dramatic. You know, my mom always called me a drama queen. Um, you know, my wife does the same thing. So I've always been sort of dramatic. You know, I was a, I'm a communications major with an emphasis in writing. Um, so I've always kind of had a creative mindset with things. Um, but, you know, I just think there's no other way to live. Like if, if you're living life and you get, you know, something that you, that you want to be great at, something you're chasing, something that's bigger than you, then you got to be passionate and go and attack it. And if you're not passionate about it, then that's not what you're meant to go after. You know, all of us are meant to be something. Some people are meant to be great, great mothers or fathers. Some people are meant to be great doctors. Some people are meant to be great trashmen. Whatever it is you're meant to be great in, man, just go be passionate and go do that with everything you got and have a lot of fun doing it. And, um, you know, that's just how I've always tried to be. It's just trying to, everyone says like, I have like high energy. Um, I don't even think I have high energy. I, I just, just who I am. You know, I don't know any other way to be, but you know, I, you know, but I want to be around people that, that believe in themselves, that believe in that they can change the world. That they have the right kind of mindset. They surround themselves with the right kind of people. You know, we talk about here, you know, doing something that's never been done. You're not going to do that trying to emulate somebody else because if you emulate someone else, it would have already been done. And so if that's your passion, that's something you want to do. And, you know, go, let's go and do this. You know, my son was riding his bike the other day where he's learning how to ride his bike um, poorly at first, like everyone. Right. And so he's falling off the bike and getting frustrated. And I just said to him, man, are we going to do this? We're going to do this. You know, like, like you can cry all you want, pick your bike up and let's go and do this. And he picked his bike up and he pedaled a little bit further and he fell again and let's do this. And he got up and did it again, you know? So I just think trying to, trying to show people, man, you got so much more inside of you. Don't be afraid to let it out. You know, I think the world a lot of, a lot of times tries to tell you that the things that you're great at, oh, you shouldn't be that good at that. Or you shouldn't want to do that. And man, the world tries to beat you down. Um, you, you think about it, like your brain and your brain's existence is to try to keep you safe. Right. So like, now, like reading this, like if you lose a game versus a, a loss in your family, right? Your brain takes that loss almost the same way. Like it, it just takes a loss the same way. It doesn't, because your brain is there to keep you safe. You know, your heart is there for you to chase things. You know what I mean? Like your heart gets racing, getting going. So it's like, you got to understand, like my brain is just trying to keep me rational. My brain doesn't want me to get hurt, right? My brain wants me to play it safe. But man, if you want to go do something great, if you want to go climb out Everest, you want to win a national championship, your brain's going to tell you all the different ways that you can't do that. That's how the world is. It's going to tell you all the different ways why you can't do it. Well, you're not tall enough. You're not wide enough. You didn't go to this school. You don't have this. Man, man, I understand that. If I choose to take that and turn that into, into gasoline for my motivation, man, I got a chance to be really special. If I choose to let that be a destination and I listen, I'm not going to, I'm not going to get very far. So, you know, I don't know if I've always been, I don't know if I've always been as passionate, um, but I've always been me and I've always wanted to make sure that people understood, man, man, you got some greatness inside of you. And there's nothing worse than watching a person who has so much greatness and goodness inside of them. And they don't have that, that Mark Jackson right beside, like Reggie Miller had, you know, he had Mark Jackson right beside him or you know, that guy pushing him a little bit further. You look at those Bulls teams, you have like Cliff Livingston and those guys who are like the hype men that are just pushing those guys further or Flavor Flav, you know, like, man, you got to learn how to be your own kind of hype man. Um, if you're going to try to do something different. And, you know, that's the one thing I've just always tried to be for people in my life. Um, and, uh, you know, it's obviously served me pretty well. Coach, it was, it was funny when you talked about, um, you know, kind of being dramatic. <laughs> when I first heard you on a 360 mentoring um, series, I didn't even know you were the head coach there. I thought they brought you in as like an actual host. <laughs> and then like when you got on a different panel, you was like, you turn, you change your clothes. And now you was like on the coaching panel. I was like, he's the head coach. <laughs> Cause like, just, 
your energy and everything was just like perfect communication. And um, I was just telling um, Nick, I was like, I really don't remember what he said, but I know we have to have him on. I remember his energy. I remember his communication and, um, and we have to have him. So uh, that, that was definitely funny when you, when you referenced that. Um, so I, I want to know what, can you highlight that moment when you knew that you had a future in your career? You had a future in this profession as a basketball coach, like early in your career, if you might have did something, something happened, where you was like, mm, I could be good at this. You know, man, that's a tough one. That's a good one. Um, you know, I would say at the Mount, this is year number five now, so I've been a head coach for five years. Um, we were one and 11 to start the year. We played a really tough schedule. You know, I, I love beating the odds. So we were one and 11, we had a tough schedule and, you know, our staff was a little rattled because we weren't having a great year. And, and, and I just remember feeling like I'm going to elevate our team right now. <laughs> like, it's like, I just tried to turn on a switch and I was like, Nope, like we're going to have the best year in school history. And I walked in the locker room and was like, Hey, we're getting better at this. We're getting better. And I kind of went down the line on it. And then we started running off. I mean, we run like 19 and 19 of our next 22 or something, you know? And I felt like, okay, like maybe I got a chance to be pretty good. At that. And we'd already been to an NCAA tournament game at that point. We were even really consistent in our league, all those things. But in that moment, we were one in 11. I mean, I, I don't know. I felt like, I felt like really strong because like, I felt like most men are going to falter right now. You know, like most men one in 11, they're going to punt on the season, get rid of the whole team, fire their staff. And I'm like, no, nah, like I'm doubling down. Like I'm doubling down and we're going to flip this thing right now. And just being able to have the guys, like the players in that locker room, man, they had so much toughness, you know? And like, you think about how tough it is. You're one in 11 looking at the stat sheet. We played a great schedule. Man, like, man, are we going to, no, we're not worried about any other games. We're not worried about the first 12. We're going to dominate the rest of the schedule. And just how we were able to kind of navigate through that and watching these guys grow in confidence by the end. You think about this, we're one in 11 going into conference play. All right, well, one game before conference play. And two months later, we're embracing each other, hugging on the floor, crying. Man, there's nothing better than that in sports. You know, is it like really going to defy the odds? And everyone said, man, how'd you guys do this? Well, we just had a tremendous belief in one another. And we just, when things got really tough, we just bonded together. And I thought that was really the first moment for me, you know, when, when you walk down and you just win that championship and you embrace the other coach, well, I thought, you know what, I, I got a chance to be pretty good at this thing if I can keep getting better at it. Um, and, th and that's when I kind of changed, changed my focus up, you know, whatever it was. At that point, I was like, you know, I could be one of the best who ever did this because most men would have faltered in that moment, and, and we didn't. And your job as a leader is to make sure your group doesn't falter, and our group didn't falter. Coach, what are some ways that you prepared yourself to become a head coach? Um, well, I've, I work for some great people. Um, so my high school coach – is I think he has over 700 victories. My college coach has over 800 victories. I then worked for Milan Brown, who went to the NCAA tournament at Mount St. Mary's and was the head coach of Holy Cross. I worked for Pat Flannery, who was, um, who's, who's in the Hall of Fame as well in Pennsylvania, was mid-major coach of the year, won the year. I worked for Bob Johnson, um, who has over 350 victories, and the, the ODAC coach of the year award is named after him. Um, I worked for Tony Shaver, who's in the Hall of Fame in Virginia, has a ton of wins as well. And then I worked for Shaka Smart. So um, you know, I think the long story short is like, I just was surrounded by people that knew what they were doing. And, you know, I was going to, I was going to have a level of success if I just could pay attention. 
And so I just tried to pay attention to the stuff that, that, they, that they did well and the stuff that I didn't like, and then just trying to be prepared for that opportunity whenever it came. I, you know, it's crazy thing is like, I didn't even think about really being a head coach. Um, everyone's trying to be a head coach and I wasn't really locked into that. I was really locked in on trying to do the best job I could when I was at Emory and Henry to help us win an ODAC championship. Then as a Bucknell, we're trying to win a Patriot League in the CA when I was at William Mary and the same thing at VCU. And it wasn't until a moment, I was actually with Coach Smart. I think I told this on the 360. I'm sitting with Coach Smart in, in his car and he goes, Jamie, what's your, what's your goal, man? And I, and I honestly, I didn't really have a goal. I was like, well, in my mind, I was like, well, to win a CA championship. I hadn't done that before. I wanted to go to the NCAA tournament. That was my only goal. And so I just kind of said to coach, well, you know, I, I want to be a head coach because I thought that's what he really wanted to hear. I didn't want to seem like I didn't have any ambition. Um, and he, you know, he flips my mindset. He goes, you know, well, you're going to be a head coach. You know, you're assistant at VCU. You're going to be a head coach. Like that's going to happen. Your goal should be to be a successful head coach. Um, and it really, in that moment was the first time I thought about like, wow, I, I can be a head coach from here. Um, and I just never processed it that way. I was just always so locked in and just trying to do the very best job I could. You know, you think about this, you got, you know, 15 guys in that locker room that need someone to care and be connected to them. That's a large responsibility. Someone's dropping off their most precious possession in life. So I just always try to lock in and trying to be the guy that could be there for the guys, give them the tough news when they need to hear it, but love them up the majority of the time. And I was just locked in that process. So it wasn't until coach kind of said that, that my eyes kind of opened and I was like, wow, like I need to be preparing to be a head coach. Um, and so, you know, I, I just tried to stay ready from there. You talked about being a division three assistant. If you were to have to start or hop into the profession tomorrow from the D3 level, how would you go about that? I thought it was the best thing I could have ever done. Uh, that was the best experience I could have, got, could have gotten. Um, going there, going to Emory and Henry. Now, Coach Johnson's had, man, he's got, I think, five Division I head coaches. Jimmy Allen, Mike Young, Nathan Davis, John Kaufman, myself. My brother works for the Wizards. He's got a guy who worked for him who's an AD at Radford now. So, I mean, I work for a giant in the game who's a tremendous teacher. I mean, look at what his, his tree is amazing because he's been able to just teach us so many things. So I, I didn't even know when I got there. Again, I just kind of stumbled into a perfect landing spot for myself. Um, but I think that's a great, I think it's a great way to go. I think what's disappointing is that guys in a division one level don't hire more division three and division two guys to move up. And I think that's what makes guys afraid to be able to do that. And um, thank God I, Pat Flannery was a division three guy. Tony Shaver was a division three guy. So they weren't afraid to hire me because they knew the journey. They knew if you're recruiting at Emory and Henry and you're getting a bunch of guys there, man, you, you must have a lot of work ethic because we're five hours from Richmond, five hours from, from Nashville and, and two hours from Roanoke in Southwestern Virginia. So you got to be in the car and you got to try to build strong relationships with people to get kids to go there. And so I was fortunate that I had two guys that, that I worked for in succession that knew my journey, that weren't afraid to do that. I think it's the best thing because I think you learn how to do more with less. You have more, you don't have any recruiting restrictions. So you can go out as much as you want. You can meet as many people as possible. I, I love it. I love it. Every year I kind of go through it. I'm building my assistance list and I'm trying to find the best division three guys. Because I feel like, man, like, anyway, they can go out 365 days a year. That's huge. You know, we're limited to 120 that we can go out. So if a guy's a Division three assistant for two years and he works it, he's going to see way more kids and build way more relationships. I also feel like when you're that Division three coach, you can build a more genuine relationship with the head coaches and, and AAU coaches because they don't see you as a threat, right? Like, like hey, they got some kids that are going to go there. They got some kids that aren't. They're going to be way more real with you. So your relationship gets stronger. It gets better. Um, then when you're a division one coach, you're coming in there. It's like, well, this kid could be this level. You know, the narrative changes when you walk in the door. 
well, you're a Division three coach. You can find a lot more information and gain a lot more relationships. So I would always prefer guys go Division three, then to Division one, kind of so on and so forth. I just think it's a great way to learn the game. I don't think it's about how fast you can rise, although I was a head coach at 29, so everyone always looks at me wild with that. I think it's about knowing what you're doing when you get there. When you arrive, do you know what to do? It doesn't matter, you know, if you get to the orchard and you don't know how to plant flowers. It doesn't matter how fast you got there, right? So, so you need to learn along the way how to plant. You need to learn how to cultivate, how to build. And so that's always my focus. I feel like the Division Three experience gave me a great opportunity to be able to do that. Coach, normally I would probably ask, you know, Coach, what keeps you motivated? What keeps you on purpose? But from our conversation, I feel like you don't have any problem, you know, being motivated or on purpose. So let me ask you this. What keeps you grounded? What keeps you, um, you know, what do you do to kind of recharge to make sure your energy level is where you need to be, you know, on and on and, um, you know, how our career can be? How do you, you know? stay recharged? Yeah, you know, there's a few things. You know, when I was assistant, when I was in operations at Bucknell, Coach Flannery had one of the best three or four years in the history of college basketball. They were amazing. They beat Arkansas in the NCAA tournament. They beat Kansas in the NCAA tournament. I got there in the third year. We won 24, 25 games in my third year there. And I just remember watching the toll that it took on him. And I remember, you know, in that fourth year, he retired at the end of the year. And I just remember, wow, like, look how fast this happened. You know, my man was literally cutting down the nets three years ago. And in year number four, you know, it, it's over and he's, and he's retiring. So I always remember that, you know, in our profession, it's just, it, it's just so flaky. It's so much of what you've done lately. Um, so I have that as a premise always. Um, you know, the other thing that keeps me kind of, the other thing that keeps me really in a, in a, in a place is, is my son. Um, just trying to be responsible for him, making sure that what he sees and what he, what he wants to emulate as a, as a child, if he looks at his father and wants to emulate that, that he's seeing those things. So that keeps me really grounded, like watching him learn things, you know, like watching my son learn how to ride the bike. He's great, you know, because that's how every one of our guys in our locker room are going to have to learn. They're going to fall off hundreds of times before they get it right. Can I pick him up all the hundred times? Can I get to 50 times and make him pick himself up? You know, like, that's what coaching and teaching is about. And, um, you know, when I really look at it, I mean, that's how I really, you know, that helps me keep me grounded. And, um, and, you know, I just think like, just being, I'll be honest, like just being black in America, I think it keeps you pretty humble because I know my roads, I, you know, I kind of always lean on that with my grandfather and my father always say to me, like my road's going to be tougher. So just knowing that ahead of time and just kind of digging my heels in consistently and not being afraid to do that. You know, a lot of people are afraid to dig their heels in. A lot of people get their ego to a level and they say, well, I shouldn't have to do this. I'm going to do whatever it takes to be the very best. And I just kind of keep that mindset and I just try to come back to zero. Um, some people call it neutral. Some people call it zero. Um, I just try to come back to that every day and just so I can be at the best place. We talk about being present in the moment. I think that really helps just kind of keep you humbled in the right place because in any particular moment, you've got to be able to handle a situation the right way. And, so, and a lot of times there's no forgiveness in what you do in that moment. So you got to get it right. And you can't do that unless you're present and what's most important in that moment. Coach, real quick, since you touched on being present in the moment, I know you're big into meditating. Can you speak a little bit about how that's helped you in your life? Um, you know, my father, you know, he, he was, my dad's done a lot of things, man. But, you know, he, he, he's a black belt in karate. Um, you know, he was, a, he, was a, he was a near Olympian. And so when we were kids, he would always teach us how to meditate. 
you know, he taught us karate from the time we were four years old until we were 15 or 16. And he would also teach us how to meditate. And, you know, as a kid, you're kind of just like blowing it off. And, you know, you don't really understand it. I remember when I was nine years old and I started, uh, I started playing baseball for the first time and I wasn't very good. You know, I, I couldn't really catch. I couldn't hit or any of that stuff. And, and they, the one game, I guess they were letting everybody try a different position. They allowed me to pitch. And I remember my first game, you know, we walked, I walked the bases loaded and, and then somehow we got out of the inning with no runs given up. I remember that power in that moment too. Like I remember it like it's, like it's yesterday. But, you know, sometimes I'd go out and I'd work with my dad and, and I would get a little like huffy, you know, as kids do. And my dad really, really built in some visualization for me at that time. And he was like, hey, really put into your mind. He would talk about being at the beach and listening to the ocean and hearing the ocean and feeling the sand. And, you know, he just kind of built that into me when I was younger. Um, and so it's just always kind of helped me a ton. You know, and now, like, like most boys, we drift away from things that help us. Um, but, you know, for a large part of my career, I've done that as a player and then as a coach. And I remember we got to a year where we were talented, but we just weren't very present. We were very distracted. And it almost hit me like on those cartoons where that anvil hits, hits you in the head, you know, it hit me like square. I was like, why am I not meditating with these guys? Like, I know the answers. I've been taught the answers from, from, my, from a young age, from an elite athlete. So I have no excuses. And that's when we started bringing people in to help our guys meditate and help them understand the importance of it. And just being able to really, and that's when we start talking more about the mental and emotional brains of just getting those things in the right place in the right order. So we're able to make the right decision. So um, it's been huge for me. I'm kind of getting into yoga a little bit now. So I'm excited about that. Um, I'm excited about when the COVID ends, trying to get on a meditative retreat for a few days. Cause I think there's just so much more I can learn about myself. And I just want to continue to encourage people like, and the self-awareness that you're able to have for yourself allows you tremendous growth. And so I think it's really important to not be afraid of what's on, what's on the inside of you and to go and try to find it. Um, I'm always constantly on that journey. Meditation allows me to be able to do that. and allows me to stay really present in the moment where our team needs. And it lets me do that in my, in my, my life as well. Oh, thank you, Coach, for, for sharing that. Um, again, it just, it just continues to, to reiterate how intentional you are about your mind, body, and spirit. So... We really appreciate that. Um, Coach, as we wrap up, uh, again, like we said, this is the Black Excellence Podcast, and, and our goal is to, to try to highlight those that we feel are continually to blaze a path uh, for the next generation. And so um, we deem you guys as, as individuals that, that are sitting on the throne um, of royalty. And, and so with that being said, uh, we have placed a crown on each individual that we've had on our guests on top of their heads and so when the time comes that you do hop off that that throne and we know that's going to be some time away because you're still young and you still got so many more things to do um what message would you engrave inside that crown as you pass it on to the to the next individual i would say don't be afraid to be you because you can change the world I want to thank you so, so much for taking the time to listen to this podcast episode. Um, I want to give a huge shout out to Rising Coaches for partnering with us and giving us this platform um, to share these amazing stories. Real quick, 
Guys, if you are not a member of Rising Coaches and you are in the basketball profession, you want to coach, you're a seasoned coach, you're a beginner coach, it does not matter. I want to encourage you to check out Rising Coaches. Um, join Rising Coaches and become a member of the largest coaching tree in basketball. Over 1,300 members from all levels, high school to NBA, gain access to over 1,000 hours of coaching clinics um, and build genuine relationships with other coaches. Rising Coaches provides the community and the resources that will help you have long-term success in the coaching industry. Please visit Rising Coaches to join or if you got any questions, hit me up.